0: The ferry will be docking shortly.
1: Podcast 20. And just before we start, I want to tell you that our Bird Deli catalogue is out this week. If you like it, you can download it for free on the website. Or if you want a real live copy, email nikki at wigglywigglers.co.uk. There's a couple of highlights. One of our customers, John Harding, has sent us in some completely wonderful photos the front cover has a wren stuffing its beak with insects and in the inside there's a perfect wax wing. Thanks John. And there's a great article from Richard on planting for birds. But no Richard this week. He's busy doing a jolly dimmock impression in Belfast. So I'm joined here with Rach on the sofa. Hello. And Mar Larkin, as I like to refer to her. <laughs> Anne, who sat on the sofa opposite. Hello. Did you tell me that you've got
2: wrens in your conservatory, young lady? I did, yes. They keep popping in and helping themselves to the mealworms. Good Lord. Yeah, really very brave. They <laughs> come in, pop onto one of the plants, yep. up there, just see if there's anyone looking, and then they pop down. Actually, they've put six in their beaks all at once. That's amazing, because so they they're quite off. shy, aren't they? Yeah, I don't know how they lift off with six <laughs> mealworms <laughs> yeah. inside them.
1: Because I think I read they weigh virtually nothing, wrens, because yeah. they're all fluff, aren't they? Anyway, Rich is off developing his wildlife garden at a school and we lost him for a while, but you have heard from him, Rach.
3: I have. I phoned him today because he didn't phone us. So <laughs> I thought I'd better find out what he's up to. And it turns out that he's unable to get a signal on his orange phone over there in County Armagh. So maybe County Armagh ought to get themselves a new <laughs> signal receiver or something. But anyway, I caught up with him at the school and he's been very busy digging his ponds, turfing all around, laying seed... Planting plug plants, but he has been up to his knees in mud because apparently they've had a lot of rain over there during the night. And so each morning he comes out and it's back on with the wellies again. Although he's thoroughly enjoying it. Excellent.
1: We must mention two podcasters who have made it to the English iTunes homepage because we've got good connections with them. So congratulations to Rob from the New York Minute Show. It was essential listening on the seven-hour
3: flight, and I know Rach, you've been around the New York Library this morning. I have indeed. His (laughs) latest podcast is a walk around the New York Library. In fact, we went there, but it was closed when we got there, so (laughs) uh, we didn't read our guidebook enough. And so when we got there, we we sat on the steps for a while, and uh, in his podcast he talks about how he goes up to the steps and is a very Roman-looking building amongst all the skyscrapers. So you've Um,
1: done a virtual tour? I have, yes. So well done to Robbie's on the homepage and also to one of our favourite podcasts, The Pod Chef, with his Gastrocast foodie podcast from Washington State. Well done, me dears. On that note, dear listener, if you're in the mood, go to iTunes and review us. We only have two Corkin reviews and Ricky Gervais has 256. What's on the show this week? Well, obviously we've got Rachel, so that will be a new experience for you, listener. We've got Anne in, well, Mar Larkin, and she's just got over Valentine's Day bouquets. She's in the middle of lambing on her farm, so it will be great to hear her news. We've got a wormcast from Monty, and Farmer Phil is here to update us on U.S. versus U.K. beef. First of all, our New York report: we completed the tourist trail very successfully with the help of the New York Minute podcast. And we were lucky enough to meet Rob in person in the Rise Bar in the Ritz-Carlton. We went to the top of the Rockefeller Centre, which has just reopened. We whizzed at the lift, didn't we, mate? Yeah. Great fun. At the top of the thirty skyscraper commissioned by Rockefeller right in the middle of a depression, he managed to create 75,000 jobs at a time where jobs were pretty scarce. So wiggly has got a way to go there. Yeah. Four, 14 <laughs> yeah. at the
3: moment. It's also the place where that famous picture is taken of all the guys sat on the steel girder. Having their lunch. Having their lunch. Erecting this skyscraper way up high. Not only that, we went to see all the gold in
1: the Federal Bank. We loved this bit because yeah. it's, it's very, very secure. But the Americans don't keep their gold there. They keep their gold at Fort Knox. <laughs> so everyone else's gold's in the Federal Bank. And we became an audience on live TV show, Fox TV's daytime show. Yeah. If you looked carefully last Thursday, in the audience you would have seen Heather rage <laughs> waving gently behind the presenters. There was only one sort of classic moment. After we'd been in the Hard Rock Cafe and had a beer or two, um, we found a guy who was dressed as a, a strawberry or a tomato. And it was only after we realised that we were in Times Square and Heather actually asked him, are you a strawberry or tomato? He said, it's the big apple, (laughs) ma'am.
3: Oops. (laughs) And then he wouldn't have his photograph taken because you defended him. Yes, oh well, never mind.
1: I mean, I should be able to tell my apples from my strawberries or my... He wasn't wasn't a very good apple, was he? No, no, you're not. One of the highlights was definitely meeting up and having dinner with fellow podcasters Rob and rocker Brother Love, who's a sort of Mark Bolan rock star Jodie and Farmer Phil, who know much more about this sort of thing, say he's great. I just love his website address, brotherloverocks.com. We managed to ask Rob and Brother Love what they thought of the hedgerow row and Wiggly Wigglers, and here's a little snippet.
2: Hey, party people, this is Brother Love in New York City, and I just want to tell you all that I love the Wiggly Wigglers. We're in New York City just chilling out, having a great time, and I hope to get some worms sent to me real soon. God bless. Rock on.
0: Yeah. What our listeners really want to know is what Brother Love's opinion is on trimming hedges. That's the important
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. I, think I want to know that
1: as well, <laughs> like actually. Out. I grew up, you know, Queens, we had trees and hedges and things of that nature. <laughs>
2: I do remember this very, very, very I remember queens. this. this uh, what, what would you call that a, a, a the clipper the head clipper, clipper. the head clipper
1: Hedge it was clipper. so dull it was so dull and I was killing
2: myself because I would do it and everything would just go you know it would just turn it wouldn't cut wing was and then one day it was, uh, and one, and day, was, when was the interesting. electric the
1: electric clipper oh <laughs> and and
4: mom was like
2: you're too young to deal with the you know and I was like but why it's fun it's electrical
1: cut things you
2: know and that was just a mess so uh, it
1: was horrible no no green thumb over here no I think bearing in mind our hedgerow route that brother love is definitely on the side of Richard because he definitely hasn't cut his hair for three years
2: (laughs) that's actually not true I just I cut my hair but I just put my finger in electrical socket
1: as you can probably imagine we didn't see many hedges in new york but staten island was where we were headed it used to house a 580 foot tall landfill but now it has a serious composting program of which the botanic gardens are a part so staten island here we come to hear about their schemes to get people composting So. Here's the Wiggly team on the Staten Island ferry. We've just left Manhattan, and we're on our way to Staten Island. There's a bit of a sniff in the air, isn't there? Could be 584 feet of landfill <laughs> Could be coming up. Coming up. <laughs> anyway, we've just gone past the um, Statue of Liberty, and Rach is here with me to give you all a few crucial facts. Rach.
3: Tell us the story. Well, apparently she was gifted to the American people from France. Um, she weighs three hundred and twelve thousand pounds. Big bird, then? Yeah, she's bigger than you. Bit though? like the Wiggly Team, really. <laughs> Big bird. <laughs> Big old girl. Anyway, her pointed finger is eight foot long. Eight foot finger. Yeah, and she, and um, she's twenty two stories of steel frame and was built by guess who? <gasps> I don't know who. Gustav Eiffel, Did he built build anything else? The Eiffel Tower. Oh, what a corker. I've got a
1: little bit of information for you. Her crown has got seven points, and those seven points represent the seven continents and the seven seas. Wow. If you could just name those for me. Ah, uh, uh, <laughs> <no>. Moving on. <laughs> anyway, we're on our way to meet Sky Suter at the Staten Island Botanical Gardens... He's the composting expert, so we'll be back to you then.
3: Thank you!
0: The ferry will be docking shortly. For your safety, all passengers are to remain off stairs, ramps and landings until the ferry has come to a complete stop at the terminal. Remain behind the designated barriers for docking. Failure to do so could result in serious injury. Please check and ensure that you have all of your personal belongings with you as you leave the ferry. Please place all trash in the
1: receptacle. So I'm here with Skye in the Staten Island Botanical Gardens. Skye, how did you get involved in that composting program?
4: The Department of Sanitation contacted us and they wanted to resurrect the program. It was already an ongoing program a number of years ago. And it got discontinued because of city budget cuts and so forth. Yep. Now it's come back. This is our second year. We're going into our second year into it. And it's going along really well. We're having a lot of fun. But it's totally sponsored by the Department of Sanitation. And so what's the aim? To give people, um, just trying to spread the word, so to speak, about compost and try to get people interested in it, interested in composting and recycling you know and just try to get people to do more because we have such a large waste yeah. cycle yeah
1: you know <laughs> and so does that include people i saw a leaflet in the reception that in, that's encouraged people to get a composter at home
4: right we sell composting bins yep. and a lot of people buy them at the give backs, which we discussed yep. before and we also sell them here at the site. Although right now we don't have any, but as soon as the
2: in yeah. another month we will. Yeah.
4: Yes, and people put the bins in their backyard and they use all their uh, leaf garden waste and they put it in there. Yep. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times with the worm bins. Yep. Yeah. Once in a while people will buy those, but we order we order them from online. Yeah. And people
1: a little more specialist market. Yes,
4: absolutely. And but some people are interested in mostly classrooms, though.
1: Yeah. grey squirrel just went by. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's your fault. We've got those, I think. <laughs> oh no, they <Man>, jump ship. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we call them rats with tails. That's, that's what I call them. Ah, there we are.
4: <laughs> the little sweeties. And then for
1: those people who haven't got any backyard, which there must be loads oh, of people yeah, like that. Oh yeah,
4: especially. Well, not so much on Staten Island, but when you get to Brooklyn, Manhattan, so forth. Yep. Um, you're talking about apartments and things. So there we try to encourage the worm bins, okay, right? Just so you can compost on your deck or porch or whatever little small area you might have.
1: Otherwise, do they sort the waste before they put it out?
4: What do you mean? Everybody on Staten Island?
1: Well, um, you've got a composting facility. Right. So the waste has to be sorted to get in that composting facility. Okay.
4: Well, remember I said they collect the leaves. Okay. And they collect. Um, so that's done like in November, December. There's certain days that are slated for, for leaf collection. And I. See. Everybody rakes a yards or whatever they do, and they put it out on the curb. Right. Okay. And but then what about it's kitchen waste just go to landfill. Yeah, pretty much. That because it's so specialised yep. and people really aren't into uh, the worms so much, but we'd like to yep. we'd like them to be more so, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> a haven't hard, got it yet. it's a hard thing to push. Okay.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Last week we spoke quite a bit about flower miles and I've had a, a reply from the House of Commons um, the Lib Dem MP for Lewis, Norman Baker, to say he's pleased that our business is sourcing from the UK. And he's going to continue his work to try and get flowers with a country of origin on each bunch. So that was interesting. But, of course, it all took off from then, didn't it, La Larkin? Yeah. Articles everywhere. I think you've been looking at some of the press about flower miles.
2: Yes. In the, most of the newspapers, there seem to have been some article or other.
1: Got any facts and figures for us? <coughs> She's putting on her glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Rearranging
2: her bun. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Roses from Kenya, they're more than 4,000 miles. Carnations from Colombia, 5,000 miles. And orchids from Thailand, 6,000 miles.
1: And not only that, one of my favourite articles, which I just have to tell you who's written this. In the Daily Mail on February the 13th, ready for Valentine's Day, a fantastic two-page spread about the real cost of your Valentine bouquet. And it talks a lot about the pesticides that are being Mm, used out there. But my favourite bit is who's wrote it? Bearing in mind it's to get rid of roses. Her name is Rosie Boycott. (laughs) 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 That's the best, isn't it? Rosie Boycott. (laughs)
3: Boycott. Look. Oh, yeah, (coughs) she has. Very appropriate. Perhaps they chose her for the article.
2: 30 million flowers have flown into Britain every year from Kenya alone and are responsible for more than 33,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year.
1: Wow. So. But it's not just the transport, because I read an article of a person who floated up the river and, and saw this just masses of polytunnels, polytunnels
2: everywhere. And it
1: was the leachate that was going into the Mm. water of the pesticides that was causing major problems for them.
2: Birth defects for pregnant women. Wow. Yeah, really terrible. And lots of uh, miscarriages and things like that.
1: And I can see why your flowers are more expensive, Um, £3 a day, I think, they get.
2: I know. It's nothing, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Don't get any ideas, Heather. No, certainly not. (laughs) But a lot of the workers, it says in one of the articles, are, are migrant workers. They're not actually... Kenyans anyway. They're European workers go there to work. God
1: Mm. interesting, isn't it, that there we are trying to trade with Africa, which is in principle a fantastic idea. Trade not aid. And yet what a legacy we're going to leave if we continue to exploit countries like this. Because of our own ignorance. I am quite sure that most people who pick up flowers in a supermarket or in a florist have no idea about the impact they don't
2: even know where they've come from, do they? Causing. Absolutely
1: not. So what are we going to do about it? Well, I suppose there's fair trade, and I'm sure there are some companies that are trading ethically. But the key thing is to source flowers in the country that you're in, encouraging English growers and perhaps even grow your own flowers. Mm -hmm. But I think part of it is going back to this idea of appreciating the seasons for what they are. We're all sat here on the sofa... (laughs) <laughs> looking at Heather's Valentine bouquet. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> which, funnily enough, came from Anne. <laughs> just give us a brief rundown of what
2: I'm looking at, Anne, because it looks wonderful. Well, we've got ivy, which came from your pear tree, well, around your pear tree. There's pink tulips, blue iris with the lovely yellow throats, white hyacinths, white snapdragons, and freesias, which are sort of a pinky-purply colour. And then we've got the lovely acid green of the blue plorum. And you've got some tortured hazelnut, which you're very lucky to have, because I don't cut that tree very often. <laughs> and the catkins are just coming out now, which I think are absolutely beautiful. It's my favourite tree. We planted it about 25 years ago. They don't get very big, but this one has done well. And it's all wrapped up with aquapack, so you didn't have to put it in water. You can plonk it straight in a pot onto the table or whatever. Which is what I've done. You have. I hope you've watered it as well. I have watered good. it, Anne. <laughs> and then it's got some pink tissue to uh, complement the colours. I know it's not the traditional red of the Valentines, but I think this is more spring-like and quite a joy to see, really.
1: And me. What do you think of it, Rachel? Yeah, I think it's really nice. I really like
2: it. That's good. Mm.
1: Thank you. Now, right. we must go on to talk about the other things that
2: you're up to, because you're busy on, aren't you? We are fairly, yes. Tell uh, me about it. Well... We've just finished the first batch of lambing. About the 12th of August, we put the tups to the ewes. I wonder if we need to explain that. Tups are male (laughs) sheep. Right. So it's a bit of rumpty pumpy. Oh, yes.
1: On the 12th of August. On the
2: 12th of August. And the lambs... The
1: glorious 12th. Yes.
2: Glorious for tups for other reasons. Absolutely. (laughs) So what sort of tups have you got? And Um, what sort of ewes? We've got Suffolk tups and texels. Right. And um, we've got Suffolk and Texel cross sheep as well. And what does so, that... Well, Suffolks have got the beautiful big black faces, very traditional sort of looking sheep. And the Texels are sort of shorter in the neck. They look like their head is actually coming out of their body.
1: And they've got a very square bum, haven't they? They
2: have, yes. And quite a square head, really, when you think about mm. it. Um,
1: and the idea behind a Texel, is it the meat? It's the meat. So yeah. you get a nice um, uh, more eye in, your in your chop chop.
2: Yeah, and more on your leg of lamb. Mm, yeah. And those lambs started coming on the 1st of January, and now we've just finished that first batch. And how and many? And 150 ewes. And how um, many lambs you know, have you got? About 350. Wow, and so it's, that's good, good, isn't there are it? quite a lot of threes. Hmm. But if you have threes, we take one of the lambs from the ewe and put it in what we call an adopter, which has warm milk pumped into it all the time, which the lambs can just take the milk when they want it.
1: So just like their mum, ad-lib
2: milk. Ad-lib milk. And then when we have a ewe that has one lamb, we take the lamb from the adopter and put it onto her as soon as the lamb's born so that the afterbirth can be put onto the the lamb. And then she takes to it and thinks it's her own. So she goes off with two lambs instead of one.
1: So she lambs, then you rub everything onto the other one.
2: Onto the dry one.
1: Because otherwise the other
2: one she'll reject. She'll just hit it. She would actually kill it, but she doesn't when they've got all the afterbirth on. The smell is the same as her own. You put it to the the teat, the lamb drinks the milk, and the milk smells the same as her lambs, and it is just happy then. Does
1: it matter how old the lamb is?
2: Well, with the adopter system, rather than going down feeding them four times a day with with a bottle, they don't really know that humans give them milk. Right. So they don't come to you every time they see you. So they take to the mother straight away.
1: Does that mean that the lamb has to be in a cubicle?
2: Yes, it's in a sort of a square box with a lamp over it to keep it warm, and it's got hay and straw.
1: Do they get distressed because they haven't got their mum there, or is the key to mum the milk?
2: Milk. (laughs) 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 Food, yes. And there's usually another lamb in there as well. Right. So they've got company. They're not on their own. Mm. And they're all inside? All inside to lamb. Well, they go out all day, and they come in at night, so they're safe and secure tucked up in the deep straw and when they lamb we put them into individual pens so they can bond with their babies.
1: Oh I see because otherwise might they get mixed up.
2: Well that's why we have to go down there like four times in the night. Elliot and I do the 10 o'clock round. Right. 12 and 2 o'clock and you can guarantee at 2 o'clock there's a lot happening. Really? Yeah you usually have about two or three lambing at once.
1: And is that scientifically proven or is that?
2: I don't know why they all pop out at night.
1: Yeah, maybe it's quieter and <laughs> maybe. relaxed. relax.
2: And then they go, they bond in, in their little pen, and they go out the next day. So they have a whole day in. So we make sure the lambs are all sucked because they have to have the first colostrum within six hours; otherwise, they probably die.
1: How often do you have to help a ewe
2: to lamb? Not and- what that often, really. But sometimes you can see when you go down the shed, there's a, a ewe in distress, and maybe the lamb's head is out and yeah. one of its feet which means that the shoulder, the second shoulder, is stuck and she can't give birth normally. So you just put your hand in and help her out.
1: And you must be very popular in the lambing shed because you've got... I've
2: got small hands. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, when it's really cold outside, that is the warmest place. Yeah. (laughs) It really warms your hands up. (laughs) And then when she's contracting, it constricts your arm as well. It's quite painful sometimes. And then who does
1: after two o'clock?
2: My father-in-law. Wow. He's usually out there about four. Well, he gets up to go out, has a look to see what's happening, goes back in, has a cup of tea, and he's up about half past five. And that's it for the rest of the day. He's in and out of the shed all day. Wonderful. And he's 80 this year. You probably won't thank me for saying that. but <laughs> <laughs> He's 80 this year, and he's still around as much as ever.
1: Dedication. Total. Fantastic. Well, we'll hear more about those lambs through the spring, because I suppose they'll be doing their
2: dancing. They will, yes. They're already doing King of the Castle.
1: And Excellent.
2: And next lot of lambs start in March.
1: Are you looking forward to it, Anne? Mm,
2: sort of. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you for coming in. No, that's okay. The competition's coming up, but just before then, Rach is in with a little bit of information about robins.
3: Yeah, and it's been brought to our attention by really by a guy called Udo Graf, who is one of our customers and he's actually in Germany. He's he actually lived over in this country and became attracted to robins and fed them a lot and seem to enjoy the actual noise they made in the garden because they do make more noise than the other ones.
1: I love his T-shirt because yes. he's actually printed his own T-shirt yeah, with
3: wiggly mealworms on it. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> he's taken the tub of our mealworms and managed to produce a T-shirt and sent us a photograph along with his letter all the way from Germany. In his letter he tells us about how the robins are not as tame over there and he doesn't seem to be able to tame them. And he doesn't know why this is. I don't know, uh, when he was over here, he said he managed to tame them really successfully and get them to feed off his hand with the mealworms. But over there, he just cannot tame them.
1: If you're in Germany or anywhere in Europe and you've got tame robins, please email us and let us know about it. Heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk or Rach at wigglywigglers.co.uk. And what's this about
3: eggs? Eggs. (laughs) Well, as we've come in today, the robin outside is making a real racket. And we all said, which one is that? And of course, it was the robin. And uh, maybe he thinks it's time for mating. But that's what he's singing about, because, of course, in May, they start the dawn chorus. And um, one of the facts that I read about the dawn chorus was that when the female lays the egg, always in the morning... The male then becomes excited and sings his little heart out because he knows he's going to get his wicked way just after that egg's been laid so that the next egg will be fertilised. Oh so it Lord. could be more sex again at Wiggly Wigglers. Oh, oh, stop her now. Come back in the spring, please. Come back, Richard.
1: <laughs> yeah, where are you? Rich? Anyway, the competition. What is... The Latin name for a robin. And we've already had a few entries in, so get your entries in and send
3: it to heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk. The Latin name for a robin. Well, Richard normally gets to say this, but now I get to say it. We've been joined now by Farmer Phil. Hi, Rach. Hi, Phil. Oh, rock on, Rach. Um,
1: (laughs) Phil, we've got quite a bit of feedback this week from um, listeners. Thank you for listening, listener, and thank you for getting back to us. So we'll go straight in with the first one. It's from Ian Salisbury, and it talks about how, when he was growing up in Herefordshire, now he lives in Bristol, it seemed that there was a greater diversity of habitats, supporting an amazing wealth of wildlife. He says, why don't we dig the ditches? Why don't we manage the riverside? Why don't we encourage smaller fields again? Why don't we plant a tree scheme? Why don't we have a plant a hedge scheme? Why don't we do this?
0: I have to agree with him, really. I mean, I can remember, was it plant a tree in 73?
1: Plant some more in 74.
0: That was about the measure of it. So he is right in many ways. We have had these schemes. And I think that the changes in farm subsidies should help reverse some of the decline in them that's gone on over the last few years. So I think that you can look forward to more habitat, more trees, more hedges probably, Although I suspect that actually going back to smaller fields is a step too far. But you will see more fields split up. You'll see difficult corners and poorer areas of the field put over to wildlife habitat rather than farmed intensively. And so I think that watch this space really.
1: Now you're just about to plant a hedge up the fence, aren't you?
0: That's right, and also there's planting new hedges on existing fence lines and there's also the the gapping up of hedges. You know, where a hedge has been, for whatever reason, there's a big gap in it. To plant some quicks in it during the winter is a good thing and it maintains these wildlife corridors that hedges form and it's important to have a network that joins up and so both those things are important and you will see more of them.
1: And there's a real time of change because in our parish the lengthsman is back.
0: We've got a new one.
1: Isn't that amazing? Do you know what the lengthsman is? I've heard of him, but I can't remember what he does. Okay, so, Phil, explain.
0: Well, we've got to give him a, a mention, really, because he's been a friend of ours for, as long as any of us can remember, at least 20 years or more. His name's Colin Hancorn, and he's a complete star. He used to farm next door to us. He was a dairy farmer for many years, and actually their family were tenant farmers on this estate for just over 100 years. Which is very unusual to have one family as tenant farmers for that long and is unique on this estate for sure. So it's great that he's back in the neighbourhood and looking forward to that. And the lengthsman basically makes sure that all the culverts and drains on the roads work. He'll help make sure that footpath access is as it should be off the roads and basically. You know, make sure that the infrastructure of the neighbourhood works in terms of puddles, potholes, ditches and anything else you can think of along those sort of lines.
1: Ah, great. That was nice to know it's a local. And moving on from that... We've had Podchef back to us about the US meat and he doesn't agree with Phil at all.
0: Well, he did put me in my place and rightly so because Heather correctly pointed out that three days in uh, Manhattan was probably not going to give me an accurate overview of the meat industry in the United States of America. And uh, having made one or two sweeping statements last week, Neil from Podchef has come back and pointed out the error of my ways and I have to say I wholeheartedly agree with everything he said And it was interesting hearing what he had to say, which was basically that in a lot of America, the quality of meat is not great. They tend to produce intensively down to a price. And the choice to buy good quality meat is very often not there, which is a pity, really. It sounds as if he's heading in the same direction as we're trying to, i.e. to try and educate people to demand better cuts and better quality possibly more traceability, and certainly in terms of production have the animal older when it's slaughtered, so it's farmed not as intensively, giving better quality of meat, better eatability.
1: One of the points that you made was that it appeared that the cuts of beef were better.
0: I don't know about better, they're different. Different people in different places cut the carcass up in different ways, and to some extent that happens from butcher to butcher. Neil's point was that there was a time when... (coughs) as a customer you could go into a butcher and ask for your meat to be cut in a particular way and obviously with the advent of supermarkets and so on that's not possible now. My point was that in this country certainly we have high quality cuts of meat that people know about but they account for the minority of the animal. The rest of it is largely unknown to people and I think they're missing out. And he agrees with me that, that this is the case and what, what you call the cuts of beef is almost incidental except for the fact that my point was that if you call a joint a pot roast or boiling beef it doesn't exactly impart the idea of quality to it. It might taste superb but you know the aspirations of people in this country and, and according to Neil in America seem to be to eat fillet steak all the time and they forget about the rest of it.
1: If you want to know more about the Neil and Phil discussion. You'll find it on my blog, wigglywigglers.blogspot.com. And you'll also find a report of how Neil's getting on with his Bukashi unit in
3: Washington State. Rach, you've got a Bukashi bucket at home and the yeah. office. Yeah, I'll try and keep two going at the moment. The office one is being obviously filled up with the fruits and of what they eat at lunchtime and that one's going quite well at the moment. We show that to various people who come here to obviously promote the product but my one at home is working very well. I've had a lot of juice at the bottom of it which I do tip down the drain and it's nearly at the top so I will be within the next weekend or so about to make a trench in my garden to empty it all into.
1: I had a um, couple of questions in from a listener and they say I'm interested in bokashi powered composting, and I wondered if you could answer the following questions. What sort of waste can I compost in the composter, and can paper be used, such as junk, post-mail, magazines, and so forth? Well, it would be absolutely pointless to put paper in. Would you agree? Yeah, it is, really. I mean, it's fantastic for meat waste and fruit yeah. waste, but paper doesn't smell anyway, no. and you're not actually going to produce a compost a finished compost from the product. So you'd be just wasting your time putting paper in. Paper in our office is shredded for packing. Otherwise, we put the paper on a conventional composter or into the wormery. And it says, how do you know if the waste has been broken down by the microbes in the brand? So in other words, how do you know when it's done?
3: Well it, it has a, a pickled look about it and the smell is completely gone. It, well it has a nice sort of pickly smell to it and so once you get to the top of your bin you then leave it for about a fortnight and then the top part is then completely done as well as the the rest of it so it's it's a pickled look.
1: Yeah practically speaking You normally have two bins, and as you fill the one, the other one is pickling. And you don't have to be too exact about it. You could actually put that compost into your garden after a few days if you filled the other one up. It's not a big deal because it'll carry on working. So thank you for
3: that. And now we have Monty with his worm cast. And Monty, bring my scissors back.
1: The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty A weekly fact on worms Earthworms are a rich source of food For all sorts of mammals and birds Hedgehogs, owls, moles and birds All eat worms as part of their diet
3: Thanks Monty Now don't you go taking my whole punch from the office I'm watching you We have missed Richard, haven't we? Oh, oh, yeah. Poor have
0: you, old, Phil? Well, poor old Swampy. Eh? Yeah. I do miss him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we hope to have Bralus in Belfast back <laughs> with us next week, a.k.a. Charlie Dimmock, a.k.a. Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> so, Noah's just joined us, so any purring that you can hear is him. Toaster's just opened the door, lay down and gone to sleep, and Phil is off to do some work. So it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Bye. And over to Noah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, put it away. A You're bit, not John. a very good
0: cat, are you? How far away do you have to go to be silent?